Welcome back everyone to The Heart Podcast. This is Dr. Castilla Montoya. On this episode, we have three scholars who will help us delve deeper into the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework, and specifically the pillar that focuses on law. In the case you're just joining us for the first time, we've been digging into this framework of truth, racial healing, and transformation that has been advanced by the American Association for Colleges and Universities throughout this year. And this episode, we're focusing on law because that's one of the pillars that's foundational to this framework. As many of you know, in the summer of 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision about race-conscious affirmative action in college admissions. Our guests on this episode help us think through this decision by grounding us in important historical context of affirmative action laws that are relevant for higher education. They also ground us in contemporary policies that affect minoritized students' access to education broadly and post-secondary education more specifically. Our guests highlight several nuances and the contradictory nature of these policies and legal decisions. We hope that the suggestions that they offer to educational leaders and faculty will prompt you not only to reflect, but to also potentially work toward innovative ways to expand access and opportunities for minoritized students in and outside of the classroom. One of our guests today is Nadia Humber, who is an associate professor of law at the University of Connecticut. Professor Humber teaches courses on property law, race and the law, housing law, and consumer protection. Prior to joining the UConn Law faculty, Humber was an associate clinical professor of law at Roger Williams University School of Law, and also a clinical professor of law at Suffolk University Law School Housing Discrimination Testing Program. There, she managed housing discrimination investigations and co-taught an experiential housing seminar. In her current work, she explores how artificial intelligence operates within property and financial service industries, and how these technology tools affect marginalized people and communities. I now pass it over to Truth to introduce our other guest. Our second guest, Dr. Preston Green, is the John and Maria Neai Professor of Urban Education at the University of Connecticut. Before coming to UConn, he served as the Professor of Education Administration at Penn State, where he oversaw the Law and Education Institute, which is a professional development program that teaches administrators and attorneys about educational law. His work primarily focuses on the legal and policy issues pertaining to educational access and school choice. Now I'll turn it over to Omar. Thank you so much, Truth. Our third guest, Dr. Leslie Williams, is a higher education scholar practitioner who currently serves as lecturer in the higher and post-secondary education program at Teachers College, Columbia University. His research offers a multi-level view of the struggle for access and equity for minoritized, low socioeconomic status, and first-generation groups in higher education in the U.S. with an eye to assuring their success. He studies national, state, and institutional level policies, programs and practices, such as affirmative action, diversity initiatives, college access programs, and teaching and learning, both singly and in interaction. I'll now transition to our land acknowledgement before we delve into our conversation. 
We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. To begin our conversation today, I'm wondering if each of you could share a bit about yourself and your journey to the type of law that you focus on or that you examine closely through the work that you do. Do you mind getting us started, Preston? Sure, thank you so much for the question. Thank you so much for having us all on on this wonderful and important podcast. I think to answer this question, I have to first tell you a little bit about my story that um, you know, I'm a second generation school desegregation kid from Northern Virginia, and I certainly experienced some benefits from desegregation, but had problems as well. And so as a result of this, you know, I was always interested in the importance of law and education, you know, Brown versus Board of Ed and so on. And I got into this work thinking about how law can be used to advance equal educational opportunity. So, you know, I've Study, I study school choice, I study school desegregation, I study school finance litigation, all in an attempt to try to find ways and possibly new ideas through law to advocate for equal educational opportunity. I've also learned over the years, you know, certainly, and this is certainly consistent with the history of law and education, that law can be used as a way of preventing these opportunities. And so, you know, through my work, I've been trying to find ways of countering that. Um, like a big concern that I have right now is with uh, school choice policies and privatization that are being used and argued for as ways of advancing equal educational opportunities, but I don't think have the legal protections for marginalized students that are necessary. And so in my work, I've pushed very hard to include those protections there. So to summarize it, it's both and. It's like, seeing how law can be used to advance opportunities, but also guarding against the ways that it can be used to prevent them. Preston, that's really powerful. I appreciate your work and I am from Puerto Rico. My family's from Puerto Rico and in Puerto Rico, there has been a tremendous shift in the way schooling happens, particularly around school choice and private taxation of the schools, and it hasn't led to uh, further educational equity. And in fact, it's been harmful for many communities. So I really appreciate the important work you do and value the way that you're both trying to advance um, equity, but also, you know, shed light on the ways in which we need to disrupt policies and law that actually um, do the opposite potentially of what they're meant to do. Can I ask uh, Nadia if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you focus on and the perspective you're bringing? Absolutely. Hi, again, I echo um, what Preston just shared. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to speak. So just sort of building on what um, Preston was sharing, I actually had a very different experience growing up. So just to tell you a little bit about me, I grew up in Salem, New Hampshire. And so my educational experience was very much biracial, multicultural upbringing in a primarily white space. And so I really, for me, it resonates, right? The, the idea of belonging and feeling like you belong in your educational space. And so, you know, this, this subject is near and dear to my heart. I was a first generation law school graduate um, in my family. And so I progressed through law school and I actually started my career as a public defender 
in Worcester County in Massachusetts. And during my time as a public defender, um, just to speak to some of the area, the, the area of law that I work in now or that I that I study now, I observed that many of my clients experienced housing insecurity. So while I started off in criminal law, you know, I eventually transitioned into wanting to understand some of the underlying issues happening in my clients' lives outside of the criminal context. And I think housing insecurity, right, is very much um, a part of a lot of the sort of systemic issues that people of color, particularly marginalized communities, experience. So I transitioned into fair housing law. I also worked as a real estate agent for a little while, observed a lot of housing discrimination, particularly against families with children, source of income discrimination for people that have housing choice voucher recipients and, pro and are involved in those programs, national origin. So uh, with all of this, I then um, got a position doing investigations for housing discrimination at Suffolk Law School's housing discrimination testing program, which is essentially as a HUD grantee, we were an organization that was funded to investigate claims of housing discrimination, enforce the Fair Housing Act, enforce state uh, fair housing laws. I was the director of investigations and community outreach, so I would educate the public about their fair housing rights, build relationships, build trust with the community, investigate both complaints of alleged discrimination and systemic investigations in an effort to understand what was happening on the ground in communities in the greater Boston area, which is where I was doing this work. So we would respond to concerns of um, residents about discrimination. And if evidence of discrimination was found, we would then enforce the laws and sue housing providers, real estate agents that were skirting the law. So that was my focus as a practitioner. I've since transitioned into academia. And so I teach at UConn Law and I teach property law, housing discrimination law and race in the American legal system. Nadia, we're so um, excited to have you here and be a part of this conversation because we know that there's such a close tie between housing, your zip code, and the type of schools you're able to go to or not go to. And so that sometimes these issues could seem like they're very distinct and disparate, but they're actually so connected. And so thank you so much for being here and being a part of this conversation today. Can't wait to learn with you and from you. Leslie, can I ask you to kind of share a little bit more about your background and, and, and the area that you're focusing on? Thank you all for having me here. Great opportunity for me to, to learn, to reflect, and listening to the uh, other guests share their, you know, sort of backgrounds. I wasn't originally thinking about, you know, sort of the biographical relation to the things I'm interested in as uh, sharing that, but that certainly plays a huge role. So. I am actually an immigrant born in Belize in Central America and went to elementary school up to seventh grade in Belize and sort of the perspective of the US from Belize was that, you know, there's this land of milk and honey and plenty of opportunity and always a perspective that at least from that maybe naive time as an elementary school student that there was so much possible here. My family moved here uh, in the late 70s and I went to um, junior high school in the South Bronx at the end of that period of the Bronx burning. And so I got to see this really dramatic juxtaposition of what I had had in my mind about what America was about, American education was about, American opportunity was about. And then later on, I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a pretty good sort of magnet type public school that drew kids from all over the city. But in those 
you know, sort of uh, contrasting experiences, I began to think about or wonder about, you know, why was it that some folks had some opportunities and others did not? And so this question of, you know, educational opportunity became uh, deeply ingrained in my uh, sense of concerns uh, that followed as I, you know, went on to college and then moved with me as I, as I moved on to uh, pursue uh, graduate studies. And one of the things that remains, you know, central to my interest is in, you know, the ways that policies or, or legal decisions have failed to produce the kinds of educational equity outcomes that they were designed for. So, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, stuff like um, the Brown v. Board of Ed decision, uh, the, 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 you know, the nearly 50 year battle over affirmative action policy, but then also kinds of uh, legal decisions that have happened in the states. I'm, I'm in New York, but in the tri-state area here, you know, Chef V. O'Neill in, in Connecticut. Abbott v. Burke in, uh, in New Jersey, the educational equity lawsuit that's been running in New York for decades, and I think finally got settled about a year ago. But, you know, we have these rulings that establish some uh, guidelines and, and regulations for pursuing educational equity, yet they never seem to achieve that. They get delayed, they get contested. And so I'm interested in why these contestations remain and they, they protect and preserve the kinds of educational inequities that they were intended to ameliorate. Uh, so that's one issue that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. Uh, from a higher ed perspective, it's mostly affirmative action, but these other kinds of issues I think are part of the same broader problem of the limits of, of legal remedies for achieving educational equity. Thank you for that response, Leslie, and thank you for, you know, connecting the personal to the structural. And, and that's something that really stood out to me when I took policy and politics here at UConn is that these laws were intended to create a certain level of equality, but there's been this persistent resistance or constant con contestation, as you explain, that makes us think about, you know, what does equality mean for so many different groups, right? And how these things are constantly in debate. So thank you for sharing that. So I would like to move on to the next question. So as you all know, the Supreme Court recently made a decision to outlaw the use of race and ethnicity as factors in college admissions. This decision has significant implications for higher education. So Nadia, I would like to start with you. Can you share your thoughts on the decision and your thoughts on how this decision fits within the larger history of civil rights law connected to educational equality? Yes, of course. Again, thank you for, for asking me to speak to this. So just my initial thought, what I'll do is I, I just want to just give you my initial thought. I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of just the, again, the historical positioning of this case, and then return to some additional thoughts about the implications of the case. So first and foremost, you know, for advocates of um, educational equality overall, I think this decision is pretty demoralizing. But I do want to say that first and foremost, the court did preserve, right, the ability for schools to consider individual student experiences with race and how those experiences affect their qualifications for admission. So as you know, 
Of course, I think this decision may create a chilling effect to educators across different sectors as well outside of the education um, educational sort of sphere, but there, there is still an opportunity and the court did underscore, right, that we must continue to remedy past discrimination, even though that is far more limited now, we are, it's imperative that we're still doing that. And just a point that I wanted to, to mention about one sort of carve out, Justice Jackson in her dissenting opinion pointed out sort of the, the awkward logic for the military academy carve out concerning the ability of the military to have race conscious admissions processes. And of course, I have to quote Justice Jackson um, in, my, um, in my contribution to this, but racial diversity in higher education is only worth preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare Black Americans and other underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker, not in the boardroom. So that, you know, just sort of underscores, right, the the strangeness of this opinion and how it can it can uh, apply in the military context, but not in higher education. So in any event, just to share a little bit about the historical positioning related to civil rights and educational equality, you know, this decision is sort of the culmination of increased efforts over the last several decades to weaken the promotion of equal educational opportunity. And so, you know, affirmative action was working, right? And so for people, sometimes I say this to my students, right? So for people with privilege and overrepresentation in this context and spaces of education, equity can feel like oppression. And so that's very, very much a sort of impetus for this decrease of um, or the weakening of affirmative action um, over time. And so, as Leslie had mentioned earlier, right, uh, when he talked about the Brown v. Board um, education decision, affirmative action is rooted in the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board decision to desegregate schools. And Brown pulled from prior decisions in higher education, like Sweat v. Painter, which struck down segregation in higher ed and other cases where they struck down segregation in law school and what have you. And they emphasize in those cases the importance of the exchanging of ideas. And so affirmative action built upon these desegregation efforts. And so affirmative action, the term was initially used by the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration per executive orders in the early 60s, where they ordered government contractors to take affirmative action to realize the national goal of non-discrimination. And those were for the sectors of employment, government contracts, what have you. So, of course, affirmative action policy recognizes that, you know, centuries old racism restricts economic, political, educational opportunities for people of color. And so, you know, affirmative action plans, right, were very proactive and necessary to disrupt um, these and, and create a more equal playing field. So you have in the 1960s and 70s colleges and graduate schools developing affirmative action policies to expand access to, to disadvantaged and underrepresented groups. And by the 1970s, these programs boosted enrollment significantly. So students of color in Ivy um, League schools and peer schools, the enrollment rates significantly increased. So again, it was working. And so challenges to these programs started in the 1970s and over time, courts have significantly limited permissible affirmative action policies. And so one of the first cases that the Supreme Court heard in 1978 was Regents of University of California v. Bakke, 
which is where a white man was denied admission to the university's medical school. And in that case, the Supreme Court ruled against the school because it had a quota system and it determined that it was not narrowly tailored enough to achieve a compelling government interest, which is a 14th Amendment analysis, the same kind of analysis that was used in the SFFA case. And so what the Supreme Court back then did do, though, was endorse the school's objective to encourage holistic review that considered race as one of many factors um, across a span and a range of other dimensions. So in the past two decades, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed the legality of race conscious admissions to promote racial diversity and what have you. And then some other past cases, right, upheld those that same idea that you can have race as a factor. So you have Gratz v. Bollinger and Grutter v. Bollinger in 2004. Those were challenges to affirmative action policies. In those cases, the Supreme Court explicitly embraced Bakke and re-endorsed individualized review processes, which is a recurring theme that you hear in the SSFA case, right? The sort of more individualized review process. But now you can't have race considered at all in terms of the admission, but you can have experience of race, your life experience, if that happens to be related to race, be shared in your um, admissions materials. So just a couple other cases that I'll mention, and then um, back to a final thought, the Supreme Court right, affirmed this reasoning in more recent cases in 2013 and 2016, one being the Fisher case, Abigail Fisher, who challenged the University of Texas at Austin's holistic race conscious policy. That argument didn't work in that case. And so Edward Blum, who is the conservative legal strategist and longtime opponent of civil rights programs and affirmative action, was unsuccessful in that Fisher case, revised his approach to eliminate race conscious admissions, and he organized Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, um, as you know, the vehicle for anti-affirmative action efforts. And so here we are. So just last point again, you know, what do I think about the opinion? I think that we need to lean into what we have before us. And again, right, that the decision allows for schools to consider how race has affected their life experience. And I want to share one last quote. Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration or otherwise. So they may share their race as related to life experience. It does not, the decision does not require schools to be unaware of students' race in the admissions process. It does not alter, and I mentioned earlier, I work in housing, it does not alter the lawfulness of diversity, equity, and inclusion in other federal laws or policies. The opinion is limited to affirmative action in consideration of race in higher education. But standards for compliance with other federal laws and other state laws are, you know, like employment, lending, housing, what have you, are unaffected by this opinion. So I'll just end by saying, you know, well, I do think that this decision could send a signal to historically marginalized students of color that they might not be welcome in selective colleges. I think that we all need to do the extra work to ensure right, that our educational institutions, our fellow educators continue the hard work of diversity programming and initiatives under the parameters of the opinion. 
but certainly those diversity programs and initiatives are legal under the Supreme Court decision. So I'll, I'll end there. Thank you for that incredible overview of just looking historically about like what are the gains from affirmative rights? What are the reactions to it? What is the resistance to it? And also thank you for emphasizing that there is something that we can maximize in terms of the student's life story and biography, we can continue to do that work and continue to invest in diversity programs that support students. So thank you, because you start off by saying this decision has been demoralizing, right? So what's the hope? Like what 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 can we still do? So thank you for pointing that out. I'm gonna move to you, Preston, and if you can share your thoughts on the decision and how this decision fits within the larger history of civil rights law connected to educational inequality. Thank you so much for the question. You know, when I, when I read this decision, it wasn't surprising to me. Like, when you look at educational decisions, you have this sort of narrowing of the window over the years. You see this with school desegregation, where you have Brown versus Board of Education. And then you, after that, after a, a you know, a period of expansion, you have this slow diminution of the rights and the scope of that the courts that the Supreme Court will allow to the point where after a while it's there's not much that you can do. And you and you see this in the affirmative action decision. And I would say that you see this right at the beginning in the Baki decision. Because in the Baki decision, as Najee had pointed out, you know, affirmative action was used to address you know, societal discrimination, the issues that keep uh, people of color be able to access education, you know, and higher education and so on. And, but, but Justice Lewis Powell in his decision, you know, in the decision that became the holding rejected the idea of societal discrimination, but then said that, well, you could, but you can have affirmative action to address, you know, to achieve race in the classroom as one of many factors. So right up front, you have that kind of minimizing of the scope that race can be used in higher education. And then you and then you see this, you know, where that was upheld over the years. But then finally, in the SFFA case, you see the closing off of that. And among other things, um, the decision, you know, when the court rejects the idea that race can be like a compelling interest, you know, one of the factors used for determining, you know, the constitutionality of affirmative action plans. Uh, the court rejected the idea of, you know, using race to achieve wider goals, such as training future leaders, preparing graduates for pluralistic society, and enhancing class racial understanding. The court says, oh yeah, those are ideas are commendable, but they can't be measured. Again, sort of limiting this, you know, the scope to which race can be used to the point where it can't be used at all. But at least we have this sense where you know, they could not get to the point where they could not prevent students from talking about this in their essays. Uh, Kata Justice Katanji Brown Jackson should be commended for pointing this out, you know, because I think they might have tried to do that if they could, but I think that she really took that away. Where I'm hopeful is that you know, I, you know, I am a hopeful guy still. And even though when I start talking, I sound like gloom and doom, I do think that, 
you know, I do think that here is an opportunity really, in addition to doing what we need to do to you know, achieve diversity under the, under the restrictions that are there in the Supreme Court decision, but we do need to start talking about what's happening at the K through 12 level. You know, the impact of, you know, the, the interplay between housing and desegregation and funding, all those factors that keep, you know, that prevent equal educational opportunity at the K through 12 level. I think that there's a revisiting of this, you know, of these factors that, that prevent equal educational opportunity. You see, you know, more folks talking about reparations, for instance, talking about and, and about edu and how education might fit into that. There's more discussion about housing and uh, desegregation and school funding. That's going on as well. So I think that I will end in a positive note and say that this might give us an opportunity for people to finally start talking about these factors. And now that affirmative action is no longer, you know, there in the same way to achieve those goals, that maybe we can start getting some pressure, you know, at the at the grassroots level, at the policy level, where 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 we are forced to talk about this much more clearly and start taking these issues on. Thank you for that, Preston. That's really profound what you're saying about the ways that this actually creates an opportunity to go deeper, to do more grassroots work, to look at this K through 12 pipeline. Who are the students once they get to higher education and what's happening in their lives beforehand? How is that connected to their neighborhoods, housing, segregation, resources that they have access to? So thank you for pointing those things out. And Leslie, let's turn it over to you to, to get your thoughts and your ideas on, on the same question. Thanks, Truth. So I'm gonna connect to uh, what Nadia and uh, Preston have shared, because I feel like that, you know, that background is incredibly important and useful. And, you know, the arrival of affirmative action policy and the way it was practiced and implemented fairly aggressively beginning in the mid 60s really did lead to a, a profound expansion of higher education opportunity, particularly at the time for black students, because that's a population that I think we have data on, given that they were they were around in, in, a, in, an, identifiably, uh, way, in an identifiable way before other racialized, minoritized ethnic groups. And we saw that the, the numbers for blacks double by the late, in, in higher ed, double by the late 70s. But we also saw that because of the, the challenge in the Baki case, those numbers begin to cool off after that period of time because schools began to become, I guess, more fearful of litigation. They scaled back the aggressiveness of their recruitment efforts. And so we, we saw a plateauing of the enrollment of, of black students and other minoritized students for a number of years and up to quite recently, I think uh, reports by Ed Trust and one by the New York Times did a report on uh, enrollments at you know 400 or so of the nation's most selective colleges and universities, and they found that the percentages of uh, underrepresented racial ethnic minority students is pretty much the same as it was 35 years ago. So that's like you know that sort of late 90, late 80s period. Those numbers have not changed dramatically, right? 
ed trust, I think report shows that percentages of black and Latinx students in, in flagship and selective public universities has also not changed a lot and have remained fairly much below, consistently below the percentages of those groups in each of those states that they represent, right? So the, 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 the legal challenges to affirmative action have had a real chilling effect on the enrollment of uh, Black and Latinx students in selective college and universities. And that's really where we're talking about issues of affirmative action, right? We're talking about places where there are more applicants than there are uh, seats, right? And so in, in many ways, you know, as a policy has existed, it, it had, a, had an, a, a major impact initially and then less so later on. And so pre preserving affirmative action as it was, was, was kind of just maintaining a status quo that in many ways I think was inadequate anyway, right? And so, you know, this ruling didn't come as a surprise to me given the composition of the court, right? Once the court became a majority conservative body, this was just absolutely in inevitable. So as I think about what higher ed institutions can do moving forward, you know, I think what we saw after Baki was student, was higher institutions, because they were fearful of litigation, they scaled back what they were doing. They didn't recruit, recruit as aggressively, et cetera. You know, the, the sense that you can't have a quota, et cetera, which is, we understand is illegal, but you know, they, they withdrew, I think more than they should have uh, at that particular time. So I think in this particular time now, higher institutions need to demonstrate a level of commitment if they really care about issues of educational equity, if they really care about the, you know, uh, they've all signed on about, you know, being committed to the educational benefits of diversity from Powell's ruling. If they really care about that, they're really going to have to do, you know, a lot more than they have been doing in the past. And they can't just, you know, sort of uh, summarily withdraw at this particular time. I would also say that some of the ways to go about, you know, pursuing these would be things like, you know, uh, we begin to see, you know, the pandemic, I think, helped this, but we saw uh, schools reduce the reliance on standardized test scores. And now we're beginning to see more and more schools make those optional, right? We know that those tests have a disparate impact on underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities. And so eliminating those or making those optional will certainly, I think, improve the opportunities for racialized minorities to uh, have access to these uh, elite institutions. Eliminating policies such as legacy admissions, I think, is another way that, you know, uh, legacies, uh, admissions advantages white students. Uh, and so eliminating policies like that, I think, should help create more opportunity. The kinds of outreach programs that, you know, we've seen develop or emerge in states like California and Texas are, are, are things I think that we need to use as models, as ideas. But I think one of the things that's happened in California is that, you know, those policies, those practices, when they initially emerged, they emerged from political pressure by representatives of those groups who are seeing their numbers decline at the UC system in particular. But once that pressure began to subside and, and you know, state economic challenges emerged, funding for those programs began to reduce. So there has to be consistent pressure and commitment to maintaining levels of funding where those kinds of programs can actually deliver results. 
Similarly, in Texas, we saw the emergence of the top 10% program there as a result, again, of pressure from those who, who were being excluded from UT Austin and, and Texas A&M. And so programs like that, they take advantage, obviously, of the residential segregation that exists in the states. But those are another, that's another kind of approach that might be possible in a number of places. We're seeing, we're seeing more schools sort of incorporate essays on, on race in their admissions, you know, processes. I think that's another way to sort of have that consideration. There's some concern in the admissions in, in the sort of uh, college prep world, a uh, college access world that, uh, you know, forcing students to, to talk about how they've been harmed by race is doing additional harm. So that's something to, to think about, you know, and then I think we have to also move beyond issues of uh, focus on access, right? Because, you know, while we've continued to have these gaps in access, we also have to have, continue to have these gaps in experiences and outcomes in higher ed, right? Where folks don't, you know, uh, underrepresented racial minoritizers don't graduate at the same levels. They don't maintain the same kinds of uh, GPAs or the kinds of rigorous programs of study that they intended to because the supports aren't there. They don't engage in student leadership or uh, internships or study abroad, any of those kind of enriching academic experiences that are available. And so schools need to pay greater attention to the actual experiences that students are, are having so that they can have more comparable, more equitable kinds of outcomes. You know, the work of people like Estella Bensimon who developed like the diversity scorecard and those kinds of things can be tools to help institutions recognize what it is that's not happening and how to interrupt those. I think those are some of the things that, you know, uh, institutions will need to, to pay attention to. But I think at the end of the day, you know, folks who are advocates and committed to issues of equity and access have to recognize this is gonna be an ongoing struggle. You know, these folks, they are relentless. This has been like a 40 year plus battle. You know, they've already sued the military academies about their continued use of race. <laughs> you know, they're going to come after financial aid that's got any kind of race connection to it. They're going to come after any kinds of residential or student support services that have any kind of racial dimension to it. Institutions have to be prepared for those advocates, students, et cetera, have to be prepared for those, have to think about the strategies are to, 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 to thwart those, to respond to those. And, you know, it's like, uh, I think it's a, it's a, the British uh, soccer folks, you know, they always talk about, you know, when a team is on the back foot, you know, you're like, you know, backpedaling, you're always like, coming at you. Uh, advocates for educational equity have to get off the back foot. They need to get on the front foot. They need to be more aggressive about what it is that uh, we really want for the students that we care about. Thank you for that, Leslie, and thank you for that image about getting on the front foot and how higher education needs to be very clear, very explicit about what they, where they stand and what their commitment is to students and that there has been some other practices that have emerged that has helped to acknowledge, you know, the way that racism has created inequality, such as, you know, um, making things SAT optional, making things more holistic, um, thinking beyond access and, and what our students experiences once they get into higher education. Like we must continue, like despite the decision, we must continue to do the work. So thank you for making that painfully clear. Can I just lift up what Leslie was saying and also, you know, just 
Preston's discussion of, you know, how affirmative action policies have just been more limited and limited over time. And here we are right where I just want to highlight this potential silver lining here. And also to what you said earlier, Truth, about this is an opportunity to really have a more um, holistic, you know, sort of review of these students. And I just want to take this opinion and just turn it on its head, right? I just think there's there's something that, that advocates can use, movement lawyers can use in community with educators, in community with, you know, uh, just racial justice advocates, grassroots, you know, organizations, and just turn this on its head, right? And sort of the shield and sword approach. So I just I just want to elevate what you said, Leslie, lift, lift up this conversation and, and encourage the, that collaboration. Love that. Thank you so much, Nadia, for those comments. And I, I'll speak from experience that I've engaged in a lot of grassroots efforts in the state of Arizona. Uh, historically, it's been incredibly anti-immigrant, uh, very racist as well. And so those grassroots efforts, uh, it's, it's definitely possible to build something great from the bottom up. It's not necessarily always from the top down. And something that is kind of, of I've, I've been hearing and witnessing this theme or these two themes that have been emerging through each of your responses. And it's something that comes up in my research as well in education policy is this duality and ambiguity that comes with laws and policies. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak to both, uh, specifically. So, uh, for example, uh, in, in Arizona, prior to starting graduate school, I was a coordinator of a college prep program. And so it was geared towards supporting low income, historically marginalized students. And, you know, on the surface, you think, great, you know, the, these high school students are being awarded uh, scholarships, they're, they're getting college credits while in high school, yet there were underlying mechanisms while at the community college that did not take their identities into consideration. One, one of which is transportation. How are they getting to campus? Many of these students were working. Many of these students had to support their families. And this community college where I worked was also so far away from Phoenix that I remember sitting with students and going over the map to get them from their home to the community college. And I would have to ask them, do you have a bike? Can you get an Uber? Because the bus would only go so far. It would only take them so far. And also having to engage in conversations with professors that had not taken into consideration that they ought not to drop their student for missing multiple classes because perhaps they were working the day of class. And so that, that you know, that's one example of this duality that uh, I believe Preston, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that laws can create opportunities, but they can also thwart them. And, you know, there's this challenge that comes with, with extending, you know, access opportunities, but then also not really supporting students once they're um, in these higher education settings with which Leslie, you, you, you mentioned, but there's also this ambiguity, right? Like at the community college at the time, undocumented students were charged out of state tuition. And so our community college was able to use unrestricted funds to support undocumented students. So it's like, there's this ambiguity that comes with, with laws and, and, and policies. And so delving into our, our next question. I'm curious to kind of tap into this reality that across the nation, there's this increased legislative work to thwart and outlaw work related to diversity, equity, and inclusion 
in higher education. I think we all feel it. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll speak on behalf of my team. You know, we all work at the Office for Diversity and Inclusion, and you know, there, there's some intense pressure that uh, folks are feeling across the nation. So I'm curious, Leslie, what, what are your thoughts on how institutions of higher education can rethink perhaps opportunities to teach and learn by building bridges between community colleges and high schools to develop higher education pipelines for minoritized students, particularly after the Supreme Court ruling? Sure, Omar, thanks for, uh, for that question. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, partnerships across four-year and two-year institutions, we've seen them grow over these last 20 years or so. We're, we've seen certainly the, you know, become more of an emphasis in states like California as the UC and the CSU systems have sort of become overcapacitated and they're using community colleges often as sort of like that as a valve to help prepare students for the first couple of years before they enter four-year universities, but it also works in some ways for families in that community colleges tend to be less expensive as well. So continuing to build on that kind of model uh, nationally by, you know, working four-year institutions, working with two-year institutions and making sure that whatever the preparation that's happening in those two-year institutions align with the sort of requirements of four-year institutions, expanding those partnerships beyond sort of state institutions so that there are more private institutions that are building those kinds of partnerships with community colleges. I think oftentimes selective private institutions do not think of community college students as worthy of entrance access and success in their institutions. So thinking about how those relationships can be better developed and supported. I, I think the issue of partnerships going even further though with K-12 school districts are really critical as well, right? Helping, contributing to whether, whether it is, you know, a school like Teachers College and issues around teacher development to improve the quality of teaching in K-12, but also in, the, in building the kinds of partnerships where, you know, students uh, at graduate schools or undergraduate schools are working with students in K-12 school settings to help them to understand, you know, not just a sort of uh, academic uh, resources that they're going to need to be successful in higher ed, but also the social cultural resources that will allow them to be successful as well, especially around things like identity. Right. I think there's fairly good evidence that at these most selective colleges, issues of, of racial incidents are, are actually fairly significant. It may be surprising to some, but that's, you know, there's, there's good evidence of that. I've come to learn recently of a program here in New York City where undergraduate students at the City University of New York system have been working with students high school students in the New York City Board of Ed, high schools, public high schools, you know, helping them to build academic skills, college readiness in different kinds of ways so that they'll have opportunities to you know, expanding on programs like that, providing the resources for programs like that to exist. We're not going to get diversity cheap, right? So these have to be built into budgets. You have to, you know, think about how are you going to fund these things so that they can actually happen. We should not be taking from low-income high school kids or low-income college kids you know, the, the opportunities for them to learn and earn something for the, for the information, for the time that they're putting out there, right? So there needs to be some, some resources 
that are put to make those things uh, a reality and building those kinds of programs, those kinds of models across the country in different kinds of uh, settings, I think is important. You know, we need to continue to build the kinds of outreach programs that, that already exist, expand on them. There's here in New York is a big network of, of nonprofit college access programs but they also often operate on bare bones. You know, they need the resources to actually be able to, you know, work with larger groups of students and give the students the kind of attention that they need. We also need, you know, fund, more funding for uh, college advisors in high schools, right? Or junior high schools, so that the, they're not dealing with like, you know, uh, 800 plus students that they're advising and barely managing to help them figure out what courses they're going to take next semester or what discipline issues they're going to get through, but they can actually be dedicated to helping them think about their pathway through junior high school, through high school, into college and beyond. So uh, those are some of the things that I think, you know, really would be helpful in the way forward, building the kinds of pipelines of racially underrepresented minoritized students in, in, in higher ed that would allow them to be to be successful and truly reflect, you know, the diversity of our of our nation and leverage the kinds of, you know, uh, knowledge, resources, skills that this broad population have. It benefits us all, I think, at the end of the day, right? Really appreciate that, Leslie. And I actually gave a guest lecture on Tuesday on community colleges, and you touched on so many things that I, I referenced in my lecture, just this these layers of inequities, right? It's like students aren't being supported, practitioners aren't being supported. It's just, you know, how, how can students expect to be treated with decency if practitioners aren't being treated with decency, right? And it's just, it, it's just a trickle down effect, which is, which is quite unfortunate. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me that you mentioned was that we need to look at the student longitudinally. When I was working with high school students, I'm like, it's already too late. We needed to start in first grade. We needed to start in kindergarten. We need to start having these conversations sooner. And we need to think about that, right? It's like in these programs need to be built in that way. And I, I know something that was referenced by Preston, Nadia, and, and yourself, Leslie, is these, these grassroots efforts, right? Like uh, these nonprofit organizations that are doing amazing work, but they're just, they're, they're not, they're not well-funded, you know, and they're, they're operating on fumes and, you know, so it's like, how can we better support nonprofit organizations as well? And I'll speak from experience that partnerships are everything. We can't do, we can't do things alone, right? I'll quote how we typically end our heart podcast is that, you know, it, it, it takes a village and it takes heart to do this work, you know, and it takes a collective effort to kind of move mountains. And so really appreciate your, your perspective, Leslie. Um, I'm curious, Preston and Nadia, do you have any, um, thoughts you might like to share regarding this question? Yeah, I would like to, to um, just to echo the point that Leslie made. I mean, especially the point about outreach, um, the, the Department of Justice and Education, I mean, the Department of Justice and Education released guidance uh, early in August of this year. And among other things, it focused on outreach, saying that universities can engage in outreach to, um, you know, targeted recruitment and outreach. And I will read the specific quote. The court's decision in SFFA does not require institutions to ignore race when identifying prospective students for outreach and recruitment, provided that their outreach and recruitment programs do not provide targeted groups of prospective students' preference in the admissions process, and provided that all students whether part of a specifically targeted group or not, enjoy the same opportunity to apply and compete for admission. 
So the point here is that you can still reach out to, you know, to communities that, you know, that have not been, that have not had access to the to your university. You can still do those things. And in fact, they should be doing it more than they have been. A lot of them just haven't done a very good job of that. Here's an opportunity to, to do better. And then I think um, one thing that universities should be thinking about as well is that, you know, when students get to these institutions, they still have to do a much better job of making it a pleasant place. So another thing that the guidance talked about was, you know, affinity groups, uh, clubs and activities that they can still do those. I mean, and have, you know, race related themes as long as they are inclusive, you know, as long as they don't exclude. So the point here again is that, you know, even with that, even when we had, even when we had race conscious affirmative action, more emphasis needed to be made, made on making this a making universities a good place for marginalized students. They can do better. And this is still something that they should be really thinking about doing in terms of just making this a, a positive environment for students once they get there. Really appreciate that, Preston. I, I I loved what you shared. I'm an optimist at heart, and so I loved what you what you said about you know here's an opportunity to do better. You know, partnerships, outreach. It's like let's use this as an opportunity because I think you know looking towards the future, we can do better and we ought to do better. So I really appreciate that, Preston. Uh, Nadia, would you uh, like to contribute any any final comments before we move on to the next question? No, I, I, the one thing I was just going to say, I think my, my colleagues covered it all, um, funding, innovative, you know, inclusive programming and retention. That's, that's what it's all about. Thank you so much. Wow. What a rich conversation. I have so many thoughts flowing right now and you all have really reframed the problem for me, actually, which is, Leslie, I really appreciate you saying maybe affirmative action wasn't working for us as much as we thought anyway, you know, and Nadia, you're saying, well, let's turn it on its head. Let's just, you know, rethink it. And I appreciate pressing what you're saying about let it doesn't prevent us from reaching out. And maybe this will put more pressure on institutions. Like Leslie said, who have a commitment. Here's the work you want a playbook for what you need to do. This is it. So thank you all for what you've said. As we close out the conversation today, I just want to turn to the microcosm. So we've been talking about law, big picture, society, policies, all of which have been really important to be thinking about because they have significant implications for the learning environment. But I kind of want to get all the way inside the classroom for a moment because there are a lot of faculty who are very committed to racial equity in their classroom and it's a challenging time for them because they are either directly being told that they're being under they're under surveillance. Like some faculty actually have shared that they get emails now saying that they're gonna be watched for whether they use this word or that word or this other word. You know, students are participating in some of the surveillance and it's creating this climate where faculty are beginning to to engage in self-censorship that's actually prohibiting them to show up in their full selves. And that can get in the way to the amazing learning that can happen when you do have diverse communities represented in, in the classroom. Would love if you each could speak to your thoughts on this backlash and how faculty can work towards staying committed to racial equity in the classroom despite 
this political and legal backlash against supporting diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly in higher ed, but I'm sure that what you might say might be applicable for all teachers K through 20. Nadia, we'd love to hear from you. That's such a great question. And I really was thinking about this and, you know, I just want to acknowledge that my place, right, and, and where I am and that for me, being able to continue the work of, you know, anti-racist teaching and inclusiveness and belonging in the classroom, I think comes easier for me because I'm in a blue state. And so I just want to acknowledge my colleagues that are in places where, you know, it's harder to do this work on a day-to-day -day basis. And so one of the ways, you know, that I just wanted to share that I'm in ensuring that we're, you know, advancing racial equity in the classroom is for me, I'm, you know, teaching in a law school and I will always, and it's my teaching philosophy, I'm going to continue teaching law in a way that is contextualized. I'm going to bring critical perspectives. I'm going to bring in perspectives from critical race. Um, I'm going to bring in perspectives from the critical legal. I'm going to bring in perspectives from, you know, critical feminist theory. I'm also going to bring in perspectives from, you know, neutral law theory and economic theory. It's just because it's important to understand all these perspectives. And so, again, I think I'm uniquely situated with at least law school because, you know, it is important for students to understand how to think from other perspectives and other positions on behalf of their clients. So for me, I'm always going to bring in a variety of perspectives and teach how legal doctrine, you know, impacts society, how the law impacts society and vice versa, no matter who's in the classroom. And so one of the ways that I do do that is I am very intentional about humanizing everybody in the room because you are going to have, I, I, I think that conversations that, you know, solicit sort of what can be contested issues, right, is, is something that requires nuance and preparation. And so for me, one of the ways that I prepare for that is by humanizing everybody in the room. I engage in exercises that will help people see each other's people, not just so that people can see each other more as, you know, more than their political leanings, because I can, I think that's just important to be able to get to the more sort of the richer conversations. I communicate the expectation of civil discourse in my classrooms. You know, there are going to be disagreements, but the way that you communicate your disagreements needs to be done constructively because you have to do this on behalf of your clients. So one of the things that I lean on, right, is the importance of skills and advocacy skills in legal education for the future, for your future practice. Um, and so, you know, that's just something that's very much a part of my teaching philosophy. And I think I have the opportunity to, to sort of lean on that perspective, to think about sort of the professionalism work and, and building in that way. And I always have a goal, right, of belonging and inclusion uh, for everyone in my classroom. And so we were, I think it was um, Omar, you were talking about how the law can be sort of, um, you know, this this sort of this thing that is um, sort of difficult to sort of to navigate. And so for me, I think students feel that way in the classroom often. And I always want to demystify the law um, so that traditional and non-traditional students, individuals with diverse learning styles can show up and be present without fear of stereotype, right? And experiencing stereotype threat without fear of feeling as though they, they're 
opinions and views aren't valued in the classroom. So I'm very intentional about creating the most sort of collaborative community that I can. And that goes for larger classroom sizes where I have 60 to 65 students as well as my smaller seminars. Another way that I'm listening to my students and bringing in opportunities for inclusion, belonging, and just making sure the classroom is an equitable place is by doing mid-year surveys with my students so that they can communicate to me, you know, how I'm doing, how they're doing, what do they need? And so, you know, I do that and I respond and I let them know that I'm responding. I am transparent about why I do things the way I do in my classroom. I'm transparent about my curriculum and why I'm teaching them certain things, which I think is important for adult learners. So that's just some ways that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, continue this, this goal, right? Our, all of our goals of educating equitably. So, you know, I'll leave there. I appreciate that perspective. And the, the bottom line is you're transparent about it. You explain to your students, you know, what's happening, why it's happening so that they could, you know, really understand it within a context, but more importantly, you humanize them in their learning experience. So often, you know, that's the key, you know, for people to be able to actually see each other, as you mentioned, um, as people first. And so thank you for those perspectives. Uh, Preston, Leslie, would love for you to chime in and share any particular thoughts about how we press on in the classroom. I guess I'll share a thought. I mean, um, I think Nadja did a great job talking about the ways that faculty can do this. I'll take this time to make a call to the administrators out there to provide support for those faculty who are doing that work. Um, because that's, that is going to be really important. It's going to be very difficult to be going out there and saying these things if the administrators don't have your back. So they need to have people's backs in order for them to be able to speak the truth. Right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. And if I could just add an addendum to that, um, to have people's back, not like way back, but like in the front foot, like, like Leslie said, because I think some institutions tend to go, well, here's our policy on that, but that's way back. That's way back. And so we really do need to think about how, how can administrators be on the front foot? of having faculties back in, in the midst of, uh, of this backlash. So thank you, Preston. Leslie, can you close us out on this conversation? <laughs> so many thoughts, so many thoughts. This idea of having your back, it uh, reminds me of a rap song, I think from like the 90s or something like that. So it's, 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 it's the line or something like, I got your back, but your best must watch your front. <laughs> and so, you know, there are ways in which, you know, we need these administrators, we also need policymakers to watch our front, right? Because by the time it's like, you know, someone's coming for your back, it might be too late, you know, you know, without eyes there to see what's going on, you know, it, it, it could be tough. You know, I think I want to acknowledge uh, what Nadia shared in terms of like recognizing that, you know, I operate in a space where the challenges to teaching about these issues are there but they're not there in the same way that they are in states where you know uh legislatures and governors are coming at folks really intentionally where there's a high level of scrutiny where there's a significant degrees of fear and even here though you know i i can feel the discomfort of engaging with these issues sometimes based on my own perceptions of who the students might be and what their perceptions and reactions might might be so just last night 
my class is an intro to higher ed class basically and but we're talking about sort of you know the the the, the history of white supremacy and institutional institutionalized racism in higher ed and as i wrestle with sort of preparing for that class and thinking about it so I, you know i want to make sure that i am able to create the kind of space and structure where we can engage with these issues in a safe uh, and productive manner where all students can feel like they're they they can be heard and you know i um the way i approached it was to you know own my own discomfort uh, my own struggle with you know my own concerns about teaching uh, that kind of material coming from my identity as a middle-aged black male with some serious dreadlocks right you know the ways in which folks think about how you're going to come at them anyway right and so trying to create that space where you know there's an opportunity for students to sort of weigh in and honestly share their their perspective so we did a decent job of creating uh that space uh, allowing students to share their perspectives but i also you know try to be honest and say i have a perspective too right you know and i'm going to try to be fair and open you know the readings are going to cover sort of a range of perspectives so you know we're going to have sort of folks who are going to talk about you know these deep histories of race and racism you know we're going to have folks like Derek bell's readings we're going to have like sean harper's reading we're also going to have stuff from you know the national association of scholars we're going to have stuff from the heritage foundation so that, you know folks have a sense that there's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a range of perspectives and they can situate themselves uh within those areas some folks may disagree with you know sort of uh having uh that that broad range i teach a class to an affirmative action in higher ed we make sure we include perspectives from people like John McWhorter, you know, I, I don't agree with him, but, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, folks understand that there are those ideas out there as well. Now, you know, for my own self, I try to, I think, be open to continual opportunities for learning and professional development in terms of like thinking and teaching about these kinds of issues. But I also, you know, I think at the end of the day, beyond institutions and my own experiences, there's so much work that needs to be done tonight here at Teachers College, actually the Black Education Research Center is going to present findings of a recent survey that shows that parents across the country are in favor of more deep engagement in K-12 schools around these issues of race and difference, right? Unlike what is being portrayed in a number of states where, you know, we see, you know, backlash being led by a small minority of parents who have significant influences on legislators and governors, et cetera, and they're imposing particular perspectives on, on K-12. So we need to, outside of the classroom, begin us, I think, leverage relationships with parents in terms of what they need, what they want for their students, given the preparation they see for the future. We need to put pressure on legislators to really think through what it is, these policies that they're trying to, to enact, to limit. We've got to think about what some what are some of the legal challenges we should be uh, mounting to these kinds of efforts, right? How can we use the law, you know, and it's questions about in infringing on academic freedom, whatever, students' rights to learn, et cetera, et cetera, to think about how we can push back on those efforts that have been, you know, popping up across the country to limit what students are being able to, to learn in, in K-12 
uh, and in higher ed uh, uh, settings. So I think the struggle is multiple. Yes, there's work that we should be doing and need to do and continue to do uh, in the classroom. And then there's work that we need to do outside of the classroom to advance these issues. I feel for those folks in those states where these challenges are real, uh, where the teachers are really feeling the pressure and are, and are scared, because uh, there are some real consequences for, for decisions that they might make. I had a conversation with a, a, a friend who I'll be hosting on a panel here in a couple of weeks. And she raised questions about, you know, whether folks will be there utilizing social media to tweet about what she might say, we're not gonna record the session, but you know, can folks sort of project out what's going on there? And you know, what are those kinds of, these are things I would not have thought about, right? But these are questions and concerns that folks actually have, teachers, administrators have about the work that they're doing. And so I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I think that these are things that we are all being mindful of. Finally, I'll say that, you know, one of my own strategies in terms of doing this kind of work, whether it is in teaching or uh, whatever, is that, you know, I, I like to be in the struggle, but also recognize that I can't be in the struggle 24-7, you know, that teachers, faculty members need to realize you need to find ways to sort of preserve, withdraw. You know, Bob Mata says, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. So sometimes you got to figure out when you're going to, when you're going to back off and run away. I'll leave it on that. Thank you for providing the context for understanding how affirmative action fits into a larger history of educational inequality. For many, the recent decision to ban affirmative action feels demoralizing, but you all emphasize that there are ways that we can continue the struggle for educational access by thinking outside of the box and challenging the status quo. You all explain that there are action steps that higher education institutions can take to remove barriers that disproportionately impact racially minoritized students. Although race cannot explicitly be a factor in the selection process, applicants can still write about racialized experiences in their personal statements to bring a more holistic picture of who they are as a person. As it pertains to anti-racist teaching, it's important for faculty to continue to use critical theories and to help students to understand the full context of educational inequality. Additionally, faculty should consistently take feedback throughout the semester to assess the class atmosphere and so that changes can be made that allow for civil discourse and constructive dialogue. Lastly, you all underscore that administrators need to make sure that they are supporting faculty members with advancing anti-racism teaching, especially those teaching in institutions and states that have more resistance towards social justice initiatives. We would like to thank you for instilling us with critical hope and letting us know that the work before us is more than affirmative action. Access to higher education should be situated in a larger advocacy project that takes into account the K through 12 pipeline, housing, and various forms of reparations. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.